Richard Garfield, Jamie Stegmeyer, Rob Davio. Now, for many in the world, they do not recognize these names. But for geeky, hardcore, tabletop game players like me, maybe you too, you know, people who love board games, card games, we recognize each of those names. Richard Garfield designed Magic the Gathering. Jamie Stegmeyer designed Scythe and mastered another game of sorts, Kickstarter. He even wrote a book about it. And Rob Davio invented legacy games, games that change from one play to the next based on the results of the previous games. A profound innovation. Another thing unites these three gentlemen, Richard and Jamie and Rob, are all past guests on Rule Breaker Investing. Now, I don't know that I'm trying to create a Mount Rushmore of game designers on this podcast, but if there's one face and name that absolutely should be on a global Mount Rushmore of living game designers, it would be my guest this week. Again, much of the world that doesn't follow this industry may not know the name Reiner Knizia, but anyone who does will recognize this many times award-winning full-time game designer and businessman who's been bringing enjoyment to the people for more than 20 years, which is about how long I've known him. And so I'm delighted to help make you smarter, happier, and richer with a particular emphasis on happier. This week on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy Groundhog Day if you're here in the United States. Well, actually, this comes out Wednesday. We happen to be taping yesterday, Tuesday, which is Groundhog Day. Still a wonderful movie. I think I've seen that movie four or five times, waking up and experiencing the same thing over and over. That's the way a lot of people have felt during their locked down COVID year that we're all just about reaching approximately give it another month or two, a year of being in pretty heavy lockdown for many of us. Certainly Groundhog Day extra resonance here in 2021. Well, as I mentioned at the top, I'm delighted to introduce you to Reiner Knizia. If you are a gamer, you certainly will recognize Reiner's name. And for many who aren't, I'm so delighted to introduce you to someone who for you will be new, but for the gaming world is one of the real constants of the last generation. About 25 years or so, Reiner has been bringing enjoyment to the people through the many games that he has both designed and then also worked with publishers globally to manage all of the intellectual properties. And so he is both a game designer and a businessman, and we'll certainly be getting into that. You know, Rule Breaker Investing at its heart, as I've often said, we spend about a third of our time on investing. It is kind of in our name, so there's a promise there. But we also spend a third of our time on business, and we're certainly going to learn some about that this week, and a third of our time on life. You know, the thing that we all live, that we try to do the best we can, investing, business, and life. And in particular, my effort through Rule Breaker Investing, this podcast every week, is to introduce you to some of the best, the best ideas, the best opportunities, the best people. And certainly, Reiner will fit right into that, as you see. You know, I've sometimes mentioned in the past the now dearly departed former preacher of the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City, Morris Boyd, who had a wonderful Northern Irish accent. And he used to refer to his friend Malcolm Mugridge, the British journalist. And he said this about Malcolm. He said, Malcolm's greatest regret in life, Boyd would say, was that he settled 
for the 10th rate when he could have had the first rate. I always remember those words, and I've always tried to live a life that aims for the first rate. So let's see if we hit that for you this week. Reiner Knizia is one of the world's great board game designers. I liken him to Mozart in terms of the prolific nature of his creation and the greatness of his work. However, unlike Mozart, I'm happy to say he did not die young and has no Salieri that I know of. For 25 years, Reiner has been winning awards and winning the hearts of gamers for his designs of great games like Lost Cities, Tigris and Euphrates, Ra, Modern Art, Ingenious, Battleline, Samurai, The Lord of the Rings Cooperative Game, Through the Desert, Quest for El Dorado, and the list goes on. But by the way, the 10 games I just mentioned are, first, his most played games, measured on my second favorite website, BoardGameGeek.com, and they're also all games that I've not only personally played, but indeed I personally own every one of them, and many others besides. Now, Reiner is a German native. After many years living as an expatriate in Windsor, England, a few years ago he returned to Germany, where he now resides in beautiful Munich, Germany. Reiner, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Well, uh, thank you for that very nice introduction. It's an honor to be there. And I'm so glad that we are together, Reiner. And you know, at the top of the show, I spent a little bit of time explaining why having one of my favorite board game designers makes makes total sense for Rule Breaker Investing. And to summarize my reasoning, I want to share with my listeners the best of the best in all things, including the people that I've known who make valuable contributions worldwide every day. And you have done that for so many gamers, me included, and I thank you for it. Now, I want to start at the beginning asking you to take us through your early days. And so let's start by fact-checking some of your Wikipedia page. Are you ready? Yes. All right. I see three items that I want to check on. Now, the first is it says, born in Germany, he developed his first game at the age of eight. Is this true? And if so, can you explain? Yes, I was born in Germany, in Illertissen, um, in southern Germany, small town. If it was really at the age of eight, I can't quite remember that far back uh, on my, my exact age or the exact day when I did it. But uh, gaming was always on my mind. It, I always loved it. And of course, I mean, when you, when you are a child, everything you do in the world is play with the things in order to learn them. Yes, so, it's, uh, it's, so we are more, probably more talking about uh, rules-based games. And yes, uh, I had some friends at school and I was so enthusiastic about games. And actually, funny, at that time, there was no internet and there were no access to other games. And in our small town, only the barber sold some games. So I was pestering him a lot, uh, but he didn't have a great choice and I didn't have lots of pocket money. So in a way, whenever I saw a theme that made me enthusiastic, then I decided, okay, I'll try it myself and I want to play it with my friends. And it was about 8, 10 and it changed. It was boards with castles and knights. It was motor racing. I mean, long tubes where the cars went through with statistics, how far they went and so a little bit of mathematical touch. 
Uh, and then what fascinated me is the big piles of money, which I initially took from Monopoly and then later made myself. There was no desktop publishing. I hand draw them and cut them out. Right. Wow. So a lot of effort to, I'm, I'm a, Early age, I'm a money forger, yes. Yes, you were creating your own currency, it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Reiner, a lot of us can probably relate as little girls or little boys to making up games with our friends. But at a certain point, it became real for you. Uh, Some of us put away the the playthings and thought that the world was about more serious things. But you went on and you just kept creating games. What was your first published game? I was lucky enough that once I got serious about being published, which is completely different than just playing with your friends because you need to create a proper general product, I was lucky enough to have gotten published in 1990 uh, with a book by a German publisher and with two games, which accidentally have similar themes, uh, Gold Rush and Digging. Uh, and these were the first published games in boxes and in book form. Ah. Before that, I had a lot of publications in magazines. I had a monthly column in the Spielbox, which is a big German magazine at that time. It was already. And um, so it, it moved gradually. And I also had a play-by-mail magazine, which I issued every month. Um, but the question answered to you is the book, New tactic games with uh, cards and dice, which has just been translated, and this was not uh, discussed before. Wow. It has just been translated into, into English, so the book is now available since a few months uh, in the English language as well. Ah, wonderful. Congratulations. Did you ever uh, have a chance to go back to the barber and find that he was selling one of your own games? And um, no, because of course I'm going back because my mother still lives in Ilatissen, um, but the, the town has uh, changed. So the, even the house is no longer standing uh, where wow. he was. Uh, you know, it's lots of change. It was right in the center of the of the town, so lots of rebuilding and lots of redoing. So uh, I know where it was. I know the place where it was, but the house is no longer there, or a different house. Before we move on to adulthood, Reiner, what, what other story maybe about you as a little boy might shine some light on our understanding of you today? I think I have given away all my secrets because I talked about money, so I became a banker. I talked about uh, cars through tubes, which uh, made the mathematics, and we talked about games, and there's nothing else in my life. I'm such a poor socket. <laughs> all right, well, let's go back to your Wikipedia page. Here's the second question I have for you. Next, it says he gained a Master of Science from Syracuse University in the United States and a doctorate in mathematics from the University of Ulm in Germany. Is this true? And if so, what are your reflections on your education? This is true. And um, particularly, as you mentioned, Syracuse University, it was a great pleasure to be there. And uh, I really enjoyed my time. I have very vivid memories of it. Um, And... uh, so the educational part of my life, uh, I was very, I am very fond of, and I was very much enjoying. For a while, for some time, I could not even imagine leaving the ivory tower. I say now, um, I enjoyed giving lectures because I then worked at university. Yes, I enjoyed giving lectures. I enjoyed doing research. I had a wonderful 
partner in my professor whom I did my thesis with. And uh, it was great. And I thought I would never have to work in my life. I just stay at university. Um, unfortunately, no, luckily, um, <laughs> I got in contact with a um, board member of a bank who was giving uh, management courses at the university at Ulm. And I got closer to him. I understood him better. And I thought, oh, that is very fascinating what they are doing. And so he was uh, uh, a top guy at uh, IBM first. And then he was, uh, uh, at that time, the um, board member of uh, the bank. And so when I decided, okay, it's time to leave, I actually applied at uh, IBM. I um, applied at the bank. And I also looked at McKinsey. And in the wow. end, I decided I'll go to the bank because I thought that's a good basis. And uh, how shall I say this? Uh, people are going to hang me for this. Um, <laughs> I was working a lot. I've been working is what I like to do. And it's not work. It's a hobby. And I like to do what I really, where my heart is in. And so I thought mm, the McKinsey people are all working quite a lot. So that's normal standard. And uh, IBM, probably in sales and so on as well, but I forgive me. I thought the bankers are more the nine to five people or whatever. So I thought if I go to the bank and really work hard, I might stand out the best. Um, and uh, yes, I made a good career there. It seems to have worked out that way. Now, we're going to go back to the bank in a minute, but I want to go back to your decision to attend university in the United States of America and going to Syracuse. Did you always have that in mind? Why did you pursue uh, a United States education? And how did you end up in a very cold place this time of year, Syracuse? I think the cold places are actually very good because people stick together and there is a better community than if everything is so easy. Um, it, it was relatively straightforward. My professor with whom I did my thesis with was also a professor in Syracuse. And so whenever he went over, he said, well, come with me. And so uh, we continued working there. And of course, the doors were open to go there. So it was, well, you grab the opportunities when they present themselves. Yes. yes. I'm very, very grateful that that happened because I didn't initially plan it. But when the opportunity came, it was just a, a wonderful step. And I can imagine, Reiner, that you always received high marks in mathematics. Obviously, you then went to pursue mathematics at a graduate level. Um, could you describe the University of Ulm in a few sentences for many of us who've never been there? Yeah, the University of Ulm is a young university. Ulm is also in southern Germany. Um, it's actually interesting, um, if I may deviate a little bit. Um, I was very much, and I am still very much into science. And the first university I applied to was Munich, where I'm sitting now, uh, because Werner Heisenberg, the uncertainty principle, was still, that's how old I am, was still lecturing at that time. Wow. So I was applying there, but then I had to do my uh, mandatory army service for a year. Yes, everybody had at that time. And so then I had to go to the army. And when I came back from the army, he had retired. Mm. So he had escaped me. And then I said, well, I might as well be lazy and stay in the rural area at home. And then I went to Ulm. I've never regretted it. Ulm is a fantastic university because it's relatively small. Uh, it's, it's relatively familiar. The professors know you all by name. This is wonderful. And it's an excellent learning atmosphere. And what they offered, 
that time almost unique in Germany was the Wirtschaftsmathematik, so business mathematics. And I so see. they had computer sciences in there. We had to wait in the first semester for four months until the first computer arrived at the university. It's Stone Age, you know? Amazing. And, and uh, we had uh, operations research, we had statistics, we had mathematics, we had business in there. Uh, so all the different ingredients, which are probably better than just focusing on one thing. Mm. So that's 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 all, yes. Thank you. And you're reminding me that I, I guess Heisenberg gave new meaning to uncertainty as he vamoosed before you had a chance to study from him. Of course, Heisenberg was a, a physicist, yes. Mm. And I was actually extremely fond of physics. And people actually looked quite after me, particularly one teacher at school, when I went far beyond what school did and I looked into relativity theory. And there was always one problem in relativity theory which I could not understand. And my teacher could not tell me. So I finally said, now I will study physics in Ulm. Mm. And I did. And then a friend of mine from school went there and studied mathematics. And so I thought, well, you always need a lot of mathematics in physics. So I'll study mathematics at the same time. Excellent. And after a few months, we came to relativity theory. And then I said, okay, now I will finally understand it. So when the subject came up, I didn't. <laughs> so I went to the tutor. This is a true story. I went to the tutor. And after a while, I had confused him. <laughs> and he said, it's not a problem. We go to the assistant, the assistant professor, and uh, we will sort it out. And it took a little bit longer, and then we had him confused. And then actually, all three of us moved on and actually went into the professor's room <laughs> at that time. And, you know, when you dig yourself into your own theory of not understanding a principle... <laughs> After half an hour discussing with him, he gave up. The professor gave up. And that was an extreme disappointment for me. And that actually made me give wow. up studying physics and go into mathematics. Mm, that is a wonderful story. You know, my own record, I've never understood relativity theory myself. Not that I really had a shot at it. I was never that inclined toward physics. In fact, I managed somehow to avoid physics in preparatory school. But I did learn about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And my, my memory from my undergraduate days is that the premise is that you cannot measure the location of something and the direction that it's going at the That's same time, good. right? Yes, yes. But, but then that, that was mapped into being generalized, this idea that if you observe something, you change the nature of that thing uh, by the very act of your observing it. Yes. And it's always been a wonderful concept. And I love that you actually knew Heisenberg. That's, that is remarkable. I never got to know him personally, but uh, of course, he was still uh, there. And I would have loved to, to take a lecture with him. Yes. He was wandering the hallways. I love it. Okay. So the last Wikipedia detail that we want to pin down on, Reiner, number three. This is the part, of course, I find so compelling as the host of the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. It says, and I quote, he went on to manage a $2 billion financial company, end quote. Is this true? And how did you get there? This is true because um, when I worked for the bank, I worked into uh, in uh, the IT department. I worked and I worked in organizational departments. And then 
I went into, um, how do you call it, strategic planning, the strategic planning department for the bank. And at that time, um, the management, the, the, the board decided that the bank needs to be restructured. So they got in um, McKinsey. And, <laughs> yes. Of course they did. <laughs> and it, actually, it, it is, you know, when you go to McKinsey, you make these very fast careers sometimes. One of my students from university was actually the project manager for this project in the bank. <laughs> of course, at that time, he was much higher than I was because that's how things go. Um, but um, when this project came to an end, the question was then, where do I go? And the, the board member I reported to at that point in time said, yes, we have some things in Germany for you, but we have a challenge in England. And England sounded wonderful, so I went to England in 1993. 1993, not 19.3 years. <laughs> It is a mortgage company, and the mortgage company writes, of course, a lot of new business every year. And the mortgage company wasn't at good standing, and that's not a secret because at that time there was a great recession in um, uh, the UK. And in the UK, you get uh, loan to value uh, up to 90, 95%. And then the house prices had fallen by 40%. So that was quite chaos. And I think the bank decided they want to have a German there uh, from their uh, head office to look after things. And um, it was a brilliant job. It was a big business. It grew. And we brought all the administration house, which was done by external providers. And that was partially the problem. And of course, just because of me, the whole economy turned around, the house prices <laughs> went up again. Very inspiring. I, I was a little hero, but I, <laughs> I, I, the accidental hero. <laughs> Reiner, during that period, what did you learn about business and what did you learn about yourself? Yeah, um, I think my first big learning, which also reflects back uh, to my gaming career, actually, uh, was very early when I went to the bank, I went into an international trainee program for a year. And so I saw the different departments and the different uh, businesses. And one of the businesses uh, was the, the credit business, so the loan, loan business. And I have really learned there when I watched how these conversations went and how the guys took the decision uh, that when you come in and say, look, if you gave me the money, then I could do this, and then I would do this, and so on. These people never got the money. Mm. And if you if people came in and say, look, this is what I'm doing, and this is my plan, and this is what I have done, and so on, so I'm all ready, and now give me the money, and I'll start. They got the money. Mm. So it is not, and now I'm going back to games, it is not, okay, I have an idea, and we could do this and this. What do you think about the concept? And then we could you never can. What you need to do is you need to say, this game is going to be published, so I need to give it my best because once I go to the publisher, they'll take it and publish it. I won't have any influence of it, so I need to put the best in there, and if I put my best in there, there will be a publisher. Not if I could and would, and it will be a good one. Ah. It has to be a good one, yes. So that was very early in my career. Um, and that actually helped me a lot when I offered games to publishers because I said, okay, understood. 
uh, that's what I need to do. Yes, and yes. you need to do the work anyway. So do it. If you believe in yourself, you'll do the work. If you don't believe in yourself, you don't need to do it because you don't never think you have to do it. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, enough with the Wikipedia page, Reiner. I'm glad to know it's mostly accurate, though. That was that was um, inspiring, Reiner. You became one of the first board game designers, maybe the first, to turn this calling into a full time job. When did that become a reality for you? Yeah, I certainly wasn't the first, but um, it, it initially I never thought I would turn that into a profession. Uh, but it became more and more serious. And when I was managing the bank in or the, the mortgage company in, in Britain, uh, and I had my successes with the games, I won the first German game prizes and so on. So I soon came to the situation where I said, I love both, but I don't feel I can do justice for both at the same time. I need to take a decision. So it was clear if I wanted to get higher, even higher in management, then you need to fully dedicate yourself to this. Or if I want to really do serious business and conquer the world there, then I need more time for that as well, because game design is not just a side uh, event. And so this was a long thought through process, because I knew once I get out, I will never get back into management. And uh, so finally, I gave myself a present for my, my 40th birthday. Um, I missed by five days when I left, um, and since then I am a um, uh, full-time game designer. Uh, so, and that was wonderful. I've never regretted doing this. So, essentially, I followed. I, I left the money and followed the heart. But you know, when you follow your heart, the money follows as well. And so, uh, the the in the end. It was the right decision because that is really what intrinsically motivates me and what really, uh, it's not work. And I recently read in a book, which I strongly believe in, is if you do a job as work, you feel it as work. And if you then compete with people who love that and do it from their heart and actually recharge while doing it, you have no chance in coming. Mm. So the best thing really you can do is follow your heart and the success will follow. If you follow the money, you will have a hard life. Mm. That is profound. And thank you for sharing that. And a life well lived, 23, 24 years now, Reiner, you have been doing your work as a full-time board game designer and a businessman. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But could you, over those 20 plus years or so, what was a typical day in your life? What does it feel like? What does it look like? A day in the life? Well, that has, of course, changed a lot over the years. Um, initially, uh, I had a lot of time. I could do a lot of designs. These were the designs of the 90s. Uh, you mentioned some of the classics there. Uh, and then, I mean, over the years, you become kind of the victim of your success because you know that yourself. Yes. So the company grows or the, you, you, there's more to do. So the operational side grows. You publish more. You have more contacts with the publishers. You need to uh, negotiate more contracts. You need to then you get the graphics. You need to get the rules. You need to approve everything. Suddenly, there's a lot of day-to-day -day stuff which happens. And 
So that led to my insight that I need support. I mean, I have always had a big circle of uh, hobby designers, playtesters around me, yes, and they do today, up to today, contribute a lot to the creativity. We have a lot of discussions and I all suck them empty like a vampire <laughs> and get their creativity and put them in there. But they get credits for it. Uh, and uh, But then I said I need to have support on the operational side. And that's when I um, hired Karen. You know Karen. And uh, she is uh, my, my brilliant colleague and she looks after the operational side. And that went very well for, it's still very well, uh, but it's been very well with respect to the concept of giving me time until we both got somewhat swamped. And then um, I recently actually decided to get another colleague on board. Um, and uh, this is Britta, who is now looking after the licensing side of the of the uh, business. And that's, so, that's kind of what takes over, right, Reiner? Because I remember, as you described, the 1990s, you were focused on just creating the games, but then being prolific and creating brilliant games, you had to manage those relationships with the publishers. And maybe a lot of my listeners who don't know the board gaming world um, as much as you do won't recognize that each of your games would be published in multiple countries sometimes in different versions. You'd have to test the rules, make sure that that makes sense for that country. You might re-theme a game. And then you have dozens of designs published in dozens of countries. And you and Karen, for years, managed and oversaw that. And of course, your business background made it possible for you and your great understanding of time and your self-discipline. And yet it becomes, as you said, you're a victim of your own success, but I guess in a good way. Yeah, of course, in a good way. I'm not complaining. I'm extremely blessed and extremely grateful. Uh, for me, there is one overriding principle, I think, which is an important factor of my success, and that is simplicity. Complexity comes so quickly. And, uh, of course, I had the organizational background. I have managed bigger companies. So um, I we have set up very simple processes, very simple tools, but also very simple means of information. And so we have about 400 active intellectual properties which we market wow. and there are 65 leisure leverage folders full of licensing contracts one after the other all active uh, that is quite a bit to manage to see do the royalties come in and so on and so on and which one doesn't sell anymore it's a big it's a big job but if you keep it simple uh, then you don't get overwhelmed once you start introducing complexity complexity grows on itself and I think the simplicity helped us the focus on what do we really need to do very early in my even before I became a full-time game designer um, I thought about what is actually the, the tagline of our business, of my business. And it, I, I, designed, I, I created it then, and it's until today, bringing enjoyment to the people. Absolutely. I so recognize that. When I look at this and say, why am I doing this? I'm not doing it for the money. I'm not doing it for the reputation or whatsoever. How can you be successful? You can only be successful if you do something which suits the people. Purpose-driven. Essentially, when you bring enjoyment to the people, uh, that's the biggest reward for me. Uh, of course, that means we need to sell the games. If only two people buy it, you can't reach a lot of people. I want to reach a lot of people, but it's more reaching the people and bringing fun to them rather than having big sales. Yes. 
And so many of the best businesses have their purpose statement, and they're driven by their purpose. And conscious capitalism, one of my favorite topics, holds purpose over profit. And the secret is, and you will understand this, that often the most profitable companies are the ones that held purpose high. It just so happens that that gives them even more profit. And that's in part explaining many of our best stock picks at The Motley Fool. Reiner, I want to describe one of the most surprising moments I've ever had at a game table. Um, So I was at a game table with you. You had come and visited us here in Washington, D.C. You were in my house and we put a game on the table and it was one of your games, Taj Mahal, I think, a wonderful game. And uh, and so we, we set the game up and then you turned to me and uh, my few other friends playing the game, and you said, okay, how do we play? <laughs> and it was completely shocking to me that I was then explaining your game to you. Now, I have since come to an understanding of this, and you explained at the time, but I want to make sure all of my listeners can, can realize this, because it says something about how busy you are and the world. So you are used to having a game like Taj Mahal published in multiple countries and with different publishers. And the publisher might take it and tweak something. They might change a rule. They might retheme it. The components may look different. And so even though in my mind, like a novelist, you've written the book, you know the plot. In fact, as a board game designer, you don't know exactly what version or how this game has been published. And so you ask me and my friends to teach you the game that you have put on the table before us. Remarkable. Yeah, but, but this is absolutely true. You see, of course, I know the plot of the game. I mean, it's not completely new. Uh, but the first thing is that, yes, some publishers want to tweak one or two things, uh, which makes sense to adapt it to the various markets. But more importantly, I have it probably more difficult than other people with my own games because I don't only know the one version. When we developed the game and tested it many, many times, of course, we had many different versions. We tried out so many different avenues of course. to perfectionize it. Yes? And so in the end, once it's a few years back, it all kind of mingles together. And then I don't quite know which one in the end did we decide for which, which version of the rules. And that makes it even harder, yes. And so uh, sometimes, sometimes I actually am found to play an, an, a, a wrong version of the game because that's more in my mind. Yes. So I'm, one other thing I am, I I I really be- believe in because we're talking business. Yes, yeah, being prepared. Uh, and when I mean I I know the plot of my games, and of course presenting a game at a show when we go to the different game fairs, is different than explaining it to be played, yes? But nevertheless, it's, uh, it's bef- the, the weekend before any show, is it Nuremberg Toy Fair, uh, New York Toy Fair, uh, or Essen, uh, is reserved for me learning rules. Mm. And I dread it because we take a three-figure number of games to the fairs yes to market yes and you when you read one piece of rule fine and then it's 10 and then it's 20 and it's 50 and you you almost get to the point of sickness um, because you're scramming so much into your head Uh, but it's important because i do not want to sit in a sales meeting with a publisher and then have to think about what do i want to say i want to concentrate 
on the publisher. I want to concentrate on the relationship and therefore I need to do my preparation. The preparation goes on anything. When we prepare a meeting with the publisher, what to show, it's a lot of preparation. What do we show to learn about the publisher, looks with the catalogs. All of this is the basis for then having a successful meeting. I know people, there, there are people, when we had hard negotiations uh, about some legal matters and so on, that the, the counterside actually criticized me. You are always so well prepared with all the materials, it's impossible to <laughs> negotiate with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it makes sense because you bring a business background that many game designers probably didn't have. And so there's an integrated approach that you've taken, and it makes a lot of sense how you're describing that, Reiner. And you know, it reminds me to ask you a little bit about your creative process, because anytime I get to meet an artist and talk with an artist, I want to know, how do they do what they do. So tell us a, a story, maybe a minute or two long, of just how you make a game. Yeah. yeah. So as an introduction, we talked about of business, and now we're talking the creative part. I think the, the really vital thing is to manage both sides. So there are people who are perfect businessmen, and there are people who are perfectly creative. If you're wonderfully creative, uh, but you don't have the business sense, it's all chaotic. And then maybe you need to find a manager, but that's in business, uh, in, in games business, not so easy. Um, or otherwise you won't sell the stuff. You won't have the relations. The other side is you're an excellent seller and businessman, but you're no good in creating. Then you have nothing to sell. Yes. And these two sides are relatively difficult to get under one head. Because... Business needs to be optimized. Business needs to be efficient, focused, uh, chut, chut, chut. Whereas creativity is not like this. It's completely, I mean, people talk about getting the ideas under the shower and so on. I cannot press out a good idea between two telephone calls and then another negotiation and then they want an email and so on. This is, this is a really hard part to let go of the effectiveness and the efficiency and to, to, fall back and to have the peace of mind to really go deeper into thinking and create something groundbreaking new. You know, I mean, standard games, a nice card game, a trick-taking game and so on, I'm not talking these down. You can do standard games and yes, it's a nice game and it's uh, there are 20 others like this. It's still a lot of fun and there's lots of demand for lots of games, yes. But this is not really my ambition. My ambition, of course, is to also do groundbreaking developments, do new trends and really make a mark. And this is something um, which, which I usually do over the weekend. Because on the weekend, I have finally taught myself I do not need to feel guilty if I don't do operational work. I can really sit there and fall back. And when I'm creative in the morning, I get up very early. I can really start with, with this and, and, and lose myself into it. And this is, so to speak, securing these protected periods. I'm, I'm very often not doing this in the, in the office. I mean, I'm here in the studio in my office, yes. So I, I would do that at home. I would do, sit there and uh, in the living room and, and, and have my laptop there and, and think. And I'm completely free and not, not and, and essentially let the enjoyment, let the enthusiasm go, yes. 
So I haven't answered your question because you said, how do I do it? The, the point here is that there are lots of theories how people come up with creativity things, but these are just models. And if they really reflect what you're doing, uh, is is at all, not at all clear. There's a design thinking stuff today, yes. the modern word. But, but what else do you do? You start with something and you play it and then you change it and you play it again and change it. And we have always done this. Today it's called design thinking is modern. Yes, it's, it's common sense. All of this stuff is common sense. Yes. But in a way, for me, designing has two phases. One phase is literally where I sit and close my eyes and look into this world I want to create and imagine the feelings and the emotions I want to have with the game and then see the different components and see the game. I mean, I see the player and I see it now. Yes, so I see the players and then I think, okay, it's my turn. And so why am I biting my fingernails? And I can, I think the experience helps there to, really, I, I can really get into this, yes? So I can really feel it and play it and try out a lot of things. Um, and then I go back and I analyze it and I look at it very structured and is it sellable? Is it new? What can I do? And then it would go into discussion rounds uh, with, with other people. So we don't only play test, but we also sit and discuss. And so this is the, the intuitive, creative phase in my head. Mm. Now, the good or the bad news is once I'm convinced of a design and I have spent a lot of time in my head, the game works perfectly in my head. <laughs> and I want, because, because podcasts are only an audio medium, I want to make sure that my listeners know that as you were describing your process, you had your eyes firmly shut. You really were visualizing uh, the game that was in your mind. And if you will, maybe the platonic version, like Plato's Cave, it looked perfect up on the wall. But now you're describing, Reiner, a process where you open your eyes, you have components, you have real play testers, and, and you start to figure out, oh, that didn't quite work in yes. the perfect way I initially saw. Yes. So that is when you, when modern terms talk about prototyping, so when you make your first model and actually play it. And that's where, I mean, essentially where the truth, the moment of truth. And it's, there is a important decision when to go to prototyping. Uh, when you go too early, then you don't really have meat on the bones and you, you don't get proof of concept because you haven't really worked it out. I'm more tending towards the other error of falling in love with my design in my head and working out things to the nth degree and fine-tuning it and everything. And then I put it in the playtesting and then it crashes enormously and it looks completely different after the first uh, game and a lot of the fine-tuning is in my head is completely wasted yes uh, so it's not fall in love with it leave it play it at the right time yes and then play testing is really the heart of game design so that means we play it and initially when we played there are big enormous changes and earthquakes mm -hmm. in the game uh, and changing it and then when it is smoothened out, then it goes into fine-tuning and we have more and more uh, stable rules. And then it's really about 
getting to a hundred percent game, an eighty percent game is easy. An eighty percent product is easy. Yes, I mean I really admire Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs, whatever personality, but Steve Jobs, the absolute dedication of making a wonderful product and not compromising. Yes, and and really mm-hmm. changing the world through his non compromising insistence, not always pleasant, but insistence of getting it there, yes. A and great so, example. Yes, and so this is the effort to put in, and what, I, what I've learned what I need to do then is once I think the game is finished, then to leave it for a month and then to take it up again mm. because you can get too close to it. And then I'm looking like, not like a beginner, but then all the things feel very different and I see how I how a new person would experience it. And that sometimes says, yes, it's perfect. Or sometimes say, mm, I need to do something. Yes. Yes. And Rainer, you're reminding us the importance of playtesting. I know for your games for years, for example, when you were living in Windsor, when you were back in England, you had school children who would come over. I'm making this up Tuesdays and Thursdays at 10 a.m. and come uh, systematically and come play your games. They got the fun of playing games. You got the great benefit of having young playtesters. I know you have a lot of adult playtesters too, but playtesting. You know, Shakespeare said the play's the thing. Perhaps Canizia Games says the playtesting's the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, this is the organization of it. Of course, um, when we need a lot of playtesting, then we play, well, if it's non-corona times, we play every day. Uh, and yes, there will be different target groups because, again, there is a two step process first of all i would play it with the experienced playtesters with my inner circle so to speak until we get a stable game but then you need to play it with the audience target yes and so you go to the kindergarten and you see how they take you bite on your handmade prototypes and you could strangle them but uh, (laughs) but essentially uh, you get a very clear feedback because you want to play it again no so you know it yes adults are sometimes far too pleasant and i need you know my criteria for a good play tester is that i constantly want to strangle them (laughs) Because, because that's where the where they are honest and we need to be you know i work in the entertainment business as a game designer. My products are entertainment business. But I'm not on the stage. So I'm not directly interacting with them. I put my entertainment into boxes. And when people open the box, they expect that the entertainment comes out. And that means it needs a lot of robust testing. This, and that's the point, is many different people, many different groups. If you only play with one group, you 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 develop certain conditions how you play certain conventions yes. and then the game works perfectly well and then somebody else takes it and then they play other perfectly fine and it doesn't work so that robustness needs to go into the design yes and reiner let me ask you to that end i got a listener question this one comes from sarang Deshpande, and he says hello david thank you for giving us fools an opportunity to ask a question to reiner so here is sarang's question he said hello reiner My 10-year-old son is an avid board gamer. He loves playing your game Lost Cities. Now, he has an idea to design a board game. He has started working on it. How would you guide a kid of his age to go from a good idea to a reasonable homemade board game that he could play with friends and family? What he's having a hard time with 
says Sarong, is keeping the rules and incentives of the game at the right level of simplicity while still keeping the game interesting. Thank you so much. Signed, Sarong Deshpande. Yeah. I mean, the process, I can only offer the one process, is play it with different people and see what makes most fun, be open to it, and uh, but also, I mean, if you get more ambitious, if you just do it for your family, then you can just play it in family and make the rules that the family likes it. If you're more ambitious and want to bring it to a wider public, you need to test it with a wider public. And then, of course, you need to find a publisher. Self-publishing is not a good idea. If you find lots of publishers who want your games, then self-publishing is good. If you can't find publishers, don't self-publish. Yes, there is a message for you. But uh, so when... You look at this, essentially, it's testing, it's being serious about what other people say about it, and it is, if you want to get published, of course, then the whole thing about understanding the industry, understanding other games, playing lots of games, that can also help, playing lots of other games, say, how do they do that? Not to copy, but just to get a feel for, how does this feel like, how does this feel like, how does this feel like, yes. And and when he says... um, the game gets too complex, that's a matter of personality. You know, I am a scientist and I like, and that's my handwriting, I like to kind of of condense my games into very few principle rules, which hopefully are so intuitive that you have a guidance how to play. Um, And then the people themselves become the acting part on the platform to actually bring their philosophy about how to approach the game and the strategy, uh, and that makes the game different every time. There are the other side of people who are the storytellers. While I reduce redundancy, they create redundancy. Yes, so they invent lots of different different details and another event card and another tile and another die and another this. And this sometimes gives the impression of a very thematic game. Sometimes you have the problem that you're administering the game more than playing it. But don't fight your personality. If the personality is more, I like the complexity, there are people who like complexities. You cannot win them all with one game. Uh, so first of all, follow your heart, find your own path and your own handwriting. But of course, don't forget the target market, because otherwise you'll have them only in your garage. Wonderful advice. And you know, to think that he's already thinking about this at the age of 10 says some very good things. For us as investors, the earlier we start, the more time we have to compound our returns. And so it's always Ah, very promising when we hear a 10-year-old is interested, whether it's in board game design and or in in investing. You know, talking about complexity and simplicity, it reminds me, I think this has always been attributed to the American writer Mark Twain. I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. And Reiner, this reminds me of how hard you work to reduce your games to just a few simple devices and the way that they interact is what makes it special but it is awfully hard work to simplify and i and i congratulate you and i'm grateful for that well speaking of simplifying i think toward the end here of our discussion i just want to ask you some simple questions and get some simple answers that way we can go through because i have too many questions for the time that we have but here we go um i've got to know you as a friend over the years reiner and so 
One of my favorite things about you are some of the lines that you've delivered that show an underlying philosophy that I want, I want to acquaint my listeners with. So, for example, um, I once met you for coffee, and we said we would meet at 9 a.m. outside Starbucks, and I came at 9.02, I believe, and you were sitting outside Starbucks on the bench, and you were very affectedly looking at your watch. And I believe you delivered a line something like this, when you are late, someone is hurt. The one who's hurt should not be the one who is on time. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is a business philosophy, essentially, because you convene people for a meeting and then somebody comes late and you punish all the people who are waiting there and wasting their time. Therefore, I'm absolutely strict. So that means I've always said you're late. And if it's only one minute, I mean this funny, but people get the message um, and we start on time. Yes. And I was very grateful because... Um, you know, I have done a very cooperative uh, Lord of the Rings game. And when I watched the movie, um, they gave me the honor. And the, I think the first sentence which is said uh, to Gandalf says, you are late. And <laughs> yes, I said, yes. <laughs> yes, I remember that moment. And uh, Reiner, it is, it's a reminder. Certainly Germans have a reputation for punctuality, well-earned. So you are one, you are foremost among your countrymen, but I absolutely appreciate the point, And that's why I wanted my listeners to hear it. Now, speaking of pain, another of your lines that I remember is, this often happens when we're playing a board game and you are in the lead. And, uh, and, and I make a mistake and you win the game. And it, you say something to this effect, if it does not hurt, you will not learn uh, yes essentially we only learn and change our behavior through emotions so in a way if we want to become better players it also needs to hurt i mean not physically and not mentally detrimentally but uh, yes, if you take it too easy and say, I don't mind, I don't care. If you don't care about it, you will not change. So therefore, putting some competitiveness or some um, emotion into the game uh, certainly helps the development of your playing qualities and the development of many other qualities. So yes, it needs to hurt a bit. Very well said. And, you know, often if you're playing a game against Reiner, he'll probably be winning the game. And he's rubbing his hands together and he's saying, if it does not hurt, you will not learn. <laughs> you know, it's the same as investing. Um, Costolani says the stock exchange is not a one-way street. And uh, yes, you need to feel the hurt to understand what careful investing means, yes, for example. Yes. One more for you, Reiner. When you play board games, you inveterately choose a single color as your playing pieces. The color is blue. Now, as Shakespeare once wrote again, thereby hangs a tale. Why blue, Reiner? And has that ever gotten you in trouble in a sales meeting? Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, you probably know the story. Yes, I told you that before. Uh, the um, I I play blue. I don't know how it came. And we, among the playtesters, have our own colors. Yes, people know that they can't have blue because I'm playing it. But I am so focused on this now that I had a sales meeting and I said, which color do you want to play? And the lady said, blue. <sighs> uh -oh. So I had to give her blue. 
And I played, and we played it a little bit, and I played complete nonsense because I always thought I had the blue. I was moving the blue piece, and she said, what are you doing? <laughs> she thought I'm a complete fool. And I, I, it's just so ingrained in my, in my mind that um, I, and it's, it's also when I design, I mean, I have a very visual uh, brain, probably. The board always has to face me the same way when we design. It doesn't matter where I sit on the table because I know then there down on the left is a problem. I need to change some spaces. Mm. And uh, it, 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 just, it just completely throws me if we turn over the board. Yes. <laughs> Creatures of habit, all of us, but especially yeah, but, those. But that's important because why make it difficult for us? Why do I have to process all the time in my red, yellow, green or whatever? I'm always blue, done. So I can concentrate <laughs> on the important stuff. Well, I think Steve Jobs had a reputation for always just wearing a black turtleneck. That way, he didn't have to think about what he was going to wear each morning. It's just mechanical, and he moves on to more important things and higher callings, presumably. Well, Reiner, this has been such a delight, and thank you for joining me on Rule Breaker Investing. And, you know, you told me in January when you and I had a call together that you are living today as you want to live. Now, that is so refreshing and inspiring. And I say refreshing because... So many people keep putting off this idea that, you know, one day they'll be happy and they'll be fulfilled, but it's always in the future, whether they ever get to it or not. I also think it's inspiring because so many of my fellow fools and listeners get really inspired by people who've reached the mountaintop of their ambitions and that they and they love what they see. So how long has this been the case for you and how did you make that happen? Well, there are no excuses because essentially you are the master of your own destination. We are, of course, in the lucky situation that we are not starving and not having to look for food for the next day. So we have settled with respect to having reasonable finances. Uh, we have peace in our world. Um, we have, I have good relationships. And so you build it and then there are no excuses. So there are Accidents, there are exceptions, there are illnesses which can hit you. But otherwise, in this situation, there is no excuse not living your own life. Yes, and um, why not do it? I, it's it's interesting. I was at a dentist, actually, somebody who makes a surgical operation, nothing serious, but it was a pre-conversation. And the guy, I met him for the first time, was absolutely relaxed. And he was running this surgery, his own one. And so he was examining me. Then he went, we were going to his office and he was asking me a question about the games. And he didn't experience, I, I, I didn't see him hurried at all. Yes, And so uh, I thought, this is not a typical doctor because usually they have 12 patients in parallel. I'm sorry for black and white here. Uh, and so I actually asked him, tell me, what's your secret that you make such a relaxed life and impression and this is not the typical thing I would have imagined. And he came he said, well first of all I'm the boss here. So there are no excuses. I decide. I have very able employees who I can hand on things. And it is a aware, it's an aware decision. How do I when he said I'm spending 14 hours a day in this surgery. Mm. He has kids, he has a wife. Um, that's all which came out of this first conversation. Um, and he says, I can race myself to death here for 14 hours. And what's the difference? It's not going to be better. So I've taken a deliberate step 
not to overwhelm myself and to do what I enjoy in an enjoyable manner. And that left a big impression on me. Uh, but it showed me again, I'm not, I have not reached that stage yet, mm. but I'm always ambitious to get there. I'm on my best way to it. Mm. Wonderful. Well, you and I have talked about the dearest commodity of all, and that is, of course, for humans, is time. And I remember you saying that you'd love to live forever if you could. You said to me, just put me in a bottle. I just want to watch. I just want to watch and see what happens. Absolutely, because our time is so exciting. So many things are happening. We, we, when we talked about the early days, the world was completely different. Yes, We did not have any smartphones to connect to the internet because there wasn't an internet. And <laughs> it's 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 completely different world. And I think it, it, well, it accelerates. And therefore, uh, I mean, it affects all of our life. And of course, you are talking about life from a perspective of investment. And of course, investment is all about the long game opportunities, the long game, uh, the fundamentals behind it. And these fundamentals will all be shaken by the new developments. And so uh, it is highly, highly uh, relevant, but it is highly exciting what's going to happen. I want to see it all. And so do I. So let's keep living. Reiner Knizia, thank you for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you. Great honor. Well, Reiner certainly doesn't need me to promote anything that he's doing. That's not his purpose on coming on this podcast, but I still want to. I want you to know that we mentioned once or twice the card game Lost Cities. Now, if you're looking for a good two-player card game, you have a spouse, a partner, or a child, you'd love to play an accessible, often replayable game, Lost Cities. Easily purchasable on Amazon or wherever you like to buy games. Lost Cities, a wonderful introduction to Kinesia Games. Reiner also had a big hit last year with Llama. That's L period, L period, A period, M period, A period, as you'll see. And if you have, let's say, an eight-year-old kid in your household, you're looking for a good kid's family card game, I can recommend Llama to you. But my favorite game in the last few years from him is My City. My City is a tile-laying game, and it's a legacy game, Reiner's first legacy game. I mentioned those at the top, games that change based on past results of those games. Well, if you're into that sort of a thing, I highly recommend My City, which we played all the way through in the year 2020, uh, a tile-laying game that just keeps getting smarter and more interesting as you play. One more thing. You remember my mental tip trick or life hack to make your own holiday? Well, if you're a regular listener, you may even know that I made one. And it's this Thursday, February 4th, and you may celebrate it with me if you like. It's win, win, win day. It's a conscious capitalism concept. It's the only real way to create sustainable wins and growth and progress in life of the best kind, the kind that brings everyone else along with you. It's to create not just a win for you, but to create a win for you, a win for me, and a win for everybody else. So this Thursday... Whether you want to pause for a moment of silence or toast with a glass of wine or go off to a mountaintop to really think about how to create win, 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 the importance of doing so, you are invited to celebrate this brand new holiday, the first time ever. February 2nd of every year here in the U.S. is Groundhog Day. And two days later, every year, not just in the U.S., but in the world, win, win, win day. So happy win, win, win day. Winning the game of investing, the game of business, and the game of life, and trying to do it 
for all of us. All right, well, that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to head back to the past. Yep, it's going to be Blast from the Past, Volume 5. We last did this in July of last year, where I pull some of my favorite cardinal points from years past and bring them back into the here and now for you only on Rule Breaker Investing. In the meantime, have a great week. Fool on and game on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.